If you missed the beginning, uh, my name is Mike. I'm the pastor here. It's, it's a privilege to uh, be able to open God's word with you, to look at Psalm 11. You can see that text on the back middle portion of your worship guide. I'll direct your attention there now. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn to Psalm 11, which is our text this morning. Uh, we've been going through the book of Psalms uh, sequentially this summer. Uh, we started it last year. We're only at Psalm 11, so of the 150 Psalms, we've got some work to do. Uh, but if you're not familiar with the book of Psalms, let me just give you a little introduction. Uh, it is the songbook of God's people. It is the melodies that God's people have been singing for generations, for millennia, um, so that we can learn what it means to uh, walk in ever more faithful ways with our God. It guides us through all of life's highest highs and lowest lows. The Psalms, as we've been seeing, presents us with a true-to-life account of life in the real world. And it insists that Yahweh, this is the God who rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt, the God who sent his son Jesus Christ to rescue his people from their sin, that he alone is in control, that he's the king of all things, and that he can be trusted. The Psalms hold, hold this truth in one hand, that, that God is good, he is with us, he can be trusted, and on the other hand, often holds out laments and honest reflections that Yahweh's people often experience trouble and difficulty in this life, sometimes crushing difficulty. And yet the Psalms conclude through reflection, through song, through prayer, that God can be trusted even in the face of difficulty. Psalm 11, if you look at it with me, um, it's, it has a little title that's, that's above it. It's to the choir master. It's a psalm of David. It's, it's dedicated to this king uh, of Israel who ruled sometime in the 10th century BC, given to the choir master so that God's people can sing it. And in this song, David, uh, he weighs different perspectives that he's being offered um, to interpret the circumstances around him. So if you look at verses 1 through 3, uh, it's in quotation marks, and that's just kind of pointing to that David is receiving advice from a friend, maybe from a counselor, or maybe he's just in dialogue within himself. The perspective of verses 1 through 3 gives a particular view of the circumstances, the difficulty that David's going through. And this perspective will leave, lead David to live and act out in certain ways. But then when we get to verses 4 through 7... He looks at his life, he looks at his circumstances from a very different perspective. And if he holds to that perspective, he will lead his life, he will act out in very different ways. Psalm 11 teaches us that in the life of faith, perspective really matters. Let me turn your attention to Psalm 11, and we can read it now. Psalm 11, to the choir master of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again.
Our Father, we ask that you would now bless and help your people. Would you comfort and sustain us through your word now? Feed and strengthen us who feel hungry, who feel weak. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. I recently bought a book, a devotional, written by a fellow PCA minister, a guy named Dane Ortland. And what he does in this devotional is he, he walks through all 150 psalms. Uh, you can read the psalm and then afterwards is a short meditation on that psalm that Dane writes. How would you title a book like that? Like if you're trying to summarize the message of 150 different psalms and all of their diversity, what would you title a book like that? How do you try to capture, just in, in one title, how God's people through the ages are called to relate to God in the darkest circumstances in life and, and also in their most joyous moments? Dane could have taken the easy way out. He could have just called it the Psalm Devotional, but he didn't do that. He titled it, taking the line from the, the very first line of Psalm 11, In the Lord I Take Refuge. That's the, that's the name of the devotional. If you're trying to summarize the Christian life, what it means to walk faithfully with God. If you want to put that on a bumper sticker, you can't do much worse than that. In Yahweh. That, that is what the all caps Lord there in Hebrew is pointing to. The covenantal name of God. Yahweh. In Yahweh I take refuge. This is the fact of the Christian life. Is a Christian person is not somebody who has it all together. A Christian is not somebody who is incredibly strong. A Christian's life may look from an outside perspective exactly like any other person you might encounter. There is joy, but there's also sadness and pain. There's victory and improvement, but there's also defeat, shame and guilt. So what marks out Yahweh's people isn't some, you know, bleached teeth portrait of a perfect life. It's this one thing. In the Lord, they have taken refuge. They have hidden themselves in God for protection and help. They admit they're weak and that he's strong, and they've entrusted themselves to him. In the cross of Christ, God has provided forgiveness for sin, adoption into his family, and the promise of life with him forever. This is a free gift. It's offered to everybody. We offer it at Christ Church every week to anyone who will listen. It's offered to everyone, and it's offered to anyone who will come and take refuge, will hide themselves, trust themselves entirely to his care and his protection. This sounds very straightforward, doesn't it? But like, like a good golf swing, just because it's straightforward doesn't mean it's easy. It's not easy. King David, he begins Psalm 11 with that statement of confidence, that bumper sticker description of the Christian faith. In the Lord I take refuge. But even though such a claim is straightforward, it's easy to say, it's not easy to live out. This is because there are other perspectives there are other refuges that are being offered to David, offered to us on a daily basis when we face difficulty. Not everyone in this world calls the Lord, calls Yahweh their refuge. And even some who do call him their refuge don't actually treat him like their refuge. When times are tough, they run not to God, but to other things for comfort and help. And so our sermon this morning will have two points. There are two perspectives that David looks at his troubles from, two refuges that are being offered to David and are being offered to us. And this is the first. Looking at the advice he's receiving in verses 1 through 3, it's the false refuge of fear and self-preservation. The false refuge 
of fear and self-preservation. Whoever's giving advice to David in verses 1 through 3 is encouraging him in the face of trouble to turn tail, run, or, or just give up. Throughout much of David's life, he faced enemies. If you, if you read the historical books, if you look at Samuel and Chronicles, you can see that uh, trouble was never far from David. Uh, the king who preceded David, King Saul, he chased David around the country trying to kill him. So David was forced to, to run all the time, to hide in holes in the ground and in caves. Uh, David, when he, when he rose, uh, when he ascended to the throne, he was surrounded by military threats. The Philistines were always raiding and attacking Israel. Later in life, one of David's own sons chased him out of the royal city of Jerusalem, hounded him for a while. David had an extremely troubled life. And so this advisor or, or you know, a friend or perhaps, again, just kind of self-talk in verses 1 through 3 is perhaps looking at one of these extreme situations that David faces. And if you look at, look at the end of verse 1, this is the advice that David's being given. Flee like a bird to your mountain. David, run. The advisor describes the enemy that's after him. Look at verse 2 as, as being sneaky, as being wicked, uh, hiding in the shadows, shooting at David when David doesn't have, have a chance to, to defend himself. They're in ambush uh, in the dead of night. And then verse 3 says something somewhat cryptic. If the foundations are destroyed, David, what can the righteous do? Here, it's like the advisor just kind of throwing up his or her hands in disgust and disbelief. They're totally disheartened. And they say, David, there's no ground left for you to stand on. All hope is lost. Everything's crumbling around you. There's no more law and order. You're toast. What good can righteousness do to you now? Being righteous, being upright, obeying God, it has given you no help. Obedience to God has not protected you. It's not a solution to your trouble. So just run and hide in the mountains. What else can you do? The advice that this friend or counselor is giving to David is taken from a particular perspective. We just call it, it's a worldly perspective. It sees the actions of the wicked against David, sees how sneaky their plots are, sees how hopeless things look for David, See how little good being righteous and obedience to God seems to have had for David? And so they conclude, David, just run. Save yourself. No one's going to help you. So you've got to help yourself. As many commentators point out when they look at these verses, it's this. Biblically, friends don't always give you the best advice. Like Job's friends, they're not always helpful. They might mean well. They might be well-intentioned. But sometimes they give you very bad advice because many people, they see life, they see difficult circumstances from this limited worldly perspective. And from this perspective, advice like this, it's, it's, it feels sound, it seems best. And so many people, they run to the false refuge of fear and self-preservation. Maybe you've been there before. Maybe that's a place you run to when you face difficulty. Perhaps you face an incredibly difficult or painful situation, and it feels like that's your only refuge. Fear and self-preservation. It's all over. There is no hope for me. I've just got to take care of me now the best that I can. This is where you go when you're in trouble, or this is where your friends or your own internal dialogue immediately points you to. You get that call that you dreaded getting. You, you, you know, you've lost your job, or the contract that you were banking on falls through, and your mind just immediately runs to fear. You're suddenly consumed without asking uh, 
all of these dark possibilities that are looming ahead of you before they even happen. What am I going to eat? How am I going to pay rent? What am I going to do? I'm on my own. It feels like the ground underneath you is crumbling. You're undone. You just feel like you want to run and hide. You are filled with fear and you just want to protect yourself from harm. Maybe you, maybe you turn to drinking or some quick but sinful pleasure that just numbs the pain. Maybe if you're a Christian, you begin to wonder, what good has it actually done me to try to live upright? Like, why have I tried to be righteous, to be obedient to God? Look at what good that's done me. Now, the problem with this, with this worldly perspective is not that it's too real. Like, we can't handle it. It's, it's just the plain facts of life. The problem with this perspective is that it's not real enough. This perspective doesn't account for God. It is purely worldly. From a worldly, temporal perspective, once you remove Yahweh, the rescuing God, out of the scenario, once you forget about eternity and the life to come from the equation, again, this advice, this way of thinking makes complete sense. This reaction is totally understandable, both for David and for us, uh, when we encounter real trouble and, and hardship. And so as, maybe as a little aside, this is a good reminder for us to surround ourselves with wise, godly friends who, who don't have this perspective, this purely worldly perspective. Beware of friends and counselors who only see things and live from this worldly perspective. Because if we're, on, if we're truly on our own, as this perspective sees at the mercy of our enemies and our circumstances that are totally out of our control, why not just run to the false refuge of fear and self-preservation? Why not just, just take care of yourself because no one else is going to? Psalm 11 tells us, because there's a different, truer perspective for our troubles, we need to run to a different refuge. And so this is point two, the true refuge of faith and obedience. This is the other perspective, the true refuge of faith and obedience. In verses 4 through 7, if you look at it, David zooms way out. He's he's focused, he's in his troubles, and he goes way back. He gets far away from the circumstances around him, and he remembers, he recalls this far bigger reality. Look at verse 4. The Lord, Yahweh, is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. David remembers, he, he views his troubles from a very different vantage point, and he looks at life not from a worldly perspective, but from what we could call a heavenly perspective. This is a, a far bigger, broader, and also a far truer perspective of trouble. It remembers who's in charge of all things. It's not our troubles that are, your, your troubles are not the truest thing in your life. It's not, it's not you. You're not in charge of all things. It's also not the wicked of the world who rule over all. It's Yahweh, this good, saving God. He's enthroned. He's ruling. This picture that David gives of the Lord seated on his throne in his holy temple, it's a picture of a king or a, or a judge in court. He's in complete authority. He has all power. Again, our troubles, they often seem so big. So all-consuming that we lose sight of this truer, bigger reality that God is on his throne. When we lose this perspective, 
it can cause us some real problems. When we operate from this worldly perspective, it causes us to behave in certain ways. Again, perspective matters. When we don't have the view of verse 4, we tend to run to the false refuge of fear and self-preservation. I've got to take care of myself right now. No one else will. I'm on my own. But when we pause, when we sing this song, we, we zoom back. We see something above the worldly plane. When we bring to mind who Yahweh is, where he is seated, that he's in control of all things, that he cares for us, that he knows us. We run to the true refuge of faith and obedience. We can say with confidence, I don't actually need to fear right now. God can be trusted. I'm not in control in this circumstance, but he is. Living obediently, it's not superfluous, It's not unimportant simply because it hasn't protected me from this trouble. No, this good God has commanded my obedience. And so it must be vitally important for for me. The end of verse 4 reminds us, if you look at it, that God sees from heaven. That the children of man, that's just a way of saying every human on earth, is being tested by the Lord. Verse 5, again, the Lord tests the righteous. That word test means that God, he, he is looking at you closely. He is is perceiving the intentions and the thoughts and the actions of your heart. He is learning what's show and what's genuine about you. That is to say, God cares deeply about your character. And our behavior, perhaps especially in difficult times, in times of trouble, reveals who you truly are. You know, it really reveals what your character is. When you're suffering, when times are hard, you're seeing the real you often. There's a saying that I heard a while ago, it stuck with me. It goes something like this. um, When you push a bottle over, only what's inside that bottle will come out. Sounds really profound, doesn't it? (laughs) Uh, Let me explain it. Uh, When you knock a bottle over, I'll say it again. (laughs) When you knock a bottle over, only what's inside of it can come out. Knocking it over, of course, doesn't create what's inside of it. It just reveals what's already there, right? We're assuming there's not a lid on top, okay? In the same way, when you get knocked over, only what's inside of you will come out. If you get that, that call that you dreaded, the lost job, the broken relationship, Uh, You have to face down yet another deep disappointment or frustration that you don't think you can bear. And then immediately what comes out? uh, Fear, anger, frustration, different kinds of disobedience. What you need to recognize is that call, that confrontation, that trouble didn't make you angry or fearful or disobedient. It just revealed what was already in there. Maybe you didn't know it was there. But, but when you got knocked over, it revealed it. And God, listen, he cares about your character. He tests the children of man. Verses 5 through 6 are very difficult verses to consider. It shows how much God hates wickedness. He, he loathes from his very being wicked character. If you've ever heard uh, the expression fire and brimstone preachers, this is a text that actually uses that language, that language of, of fire and sulfur. In, in the King James, it's talking about fire and brimstone. David's reminded how important character is to God, that in the final judgment, after we die, or, or, or sometime in the future, fire and sulfur, uh, 
these images of complete destruction, of burning away uh, what, what can be burned, a consuming force, this is what God's judgment will be like on those of wicked character. God will purify this world. He wants to remake it, to renew it, to chase all that's evil and dark and wrong and broken away, to, to build a perfect world, his perfect kingdom. And that includes chasing away all that is wrong. Those who, the text says, who love violence, whose very character is wicked. Now these are fearsome words because all of us know. Uh, we, we, we've already, we've said the quiet part out loud during our confession of sin. We all know that we have some really nasty stuff inside of us. Maybe you've had a difficult situation around you recently and something got knocked out that you didn't realize was there. This verse is a sobering wake-up call that if things are going to be burned up and swept away in that final judgment, there's, there's some of us that must be swept away too. This could be a very, a very sad message if not for God's kindness and his mercy, which we've also sung about. The mercy that God offers to sinners like you and me offers even to the wicked, to enemies, a different refuge that's filled with life. This is the true refuge of faith and obedience. Again, offered to everyone, to anyone who will listen. No one's too wicked. No one's too far gone that Christ will not welcome them to him to change their character, to renew and change them. As we said, this is very straightforward, but it's not always easy. How can we entrust ourselves to this God when we have such, such horrible character, when we've learned through so much of life to just operate out of fear and self-preservation? Well, the Apostle Paul, he was a character from the New Testament. He was somebody who operated from that perspective, and yet in God's mercy, he was rescued he was changed and renewed, and he began to operate from a very different perspective. The Apostle Paul suffered a whole bunch. When you read through the Bible, it's, it's kind of hard to understand the different things that he suffered in service to the kingdom. When you get to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is writing to that church about all of the troubles that he and his fellow Christian workers have faced on just like one of their most recent uh, trips preaching the gospel through ancient Asia. I want you to listen to what he writes. He writes, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction, the really heavy burdens that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. This is an incredibly unique perspective on suffering and trouble. That trouble, a trouble that makes you feel small and weak and crushed, can actually be a gift from God to build your faith and your obedience. To take you from, from fear to faith. To bring us from self-preservation to obedience. The affliction Paul experienced was extreme. It is wild to read about. But he saw that God had a purpose in it. It made Paul, it made his friends no longer rely on themselves, but on God who raises the dead. Your afflictions, like nothing else in your life, they can help bring you to a point where you've got nothing else. You've got nothing in yourself to depend on, no one else to turn to. And so you must cry out what David does in the first verse of Psalm 11, In the Lord I take refuge. 
If you look at the outside world, you just see darkness and trouble. When you look inside yourself, you see a mess. Outside of me, there's fear of death. Inside of me, my sin, my anger, and my resentment will lead to judgment and death. So where do I go? Paul says, I must find my refuge in the one who raises the dead. Verse 7 points us to the ultimate hope of the Christian. The last line there, that the upright shall behold Yahweh's face. It's an expression of joying God's presence and comfort all our days. Who are the upright? Simply, they're the ones who enter into the true refuge of faith and obedience. They're not perfect. They're, they're not especially strong. But they've learned to hide themselves in the one who is, the one who raises the dead. Let's end with this. As we said at the beginning, a Christian's not a person who has it all together. It's not a person who's incredibly strong. They're people uh, like you. They're people like David. They're people like the Apostle Paul, who are perhaps, they feel like they're at the end of their rope. Or, or they're feeling the weight of their own sin and the suffering around them. They're tempted to give up. To listen to the voices, perhaps of friends, of counselors, voices within themselves, that telling them that the only refuge for them is fear and self-preservation. But when by God's grace... They pull back and they are given a heavenly perspective of their troubles, of God. They see things very differently. They see that their ultimate hope isn't in a change in their circumstances. It's not in that bleached teeth, perfect life, but it's in this one thing. In the Lord, in Yahweh, they can take refuge. They have this hope that, that God himself offers himself as protection, as help, they get to admit that they're weak, which they already knew was true. And they get to entrust themselves to the one who is strong and who loves them. They pull back and they gain perspective, not only of who God is, but they gain new perspective of what the cross of Christ means. If you can imagine Christ near the end of his earthly ministry, he had friends, he had counselors around him who would probably give this kind of advice to him. Jesus, run. The wicked are after you to arrest you and to crucify you. But Jesus, for your sake, entrusted himself to his father who was sitting on the throne. He walked in faith and obedience for you. And Jesus, who is tested under the agonies of the cross so that we could find refuge in him. So that in his blood we could be forgiven, renewed, restored. We who are wicked could be forgiven and brought close, adopted into God's family. So that we, though we ourselves are not upright, in him can be upright and together forever behold the face of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that by your spirit you would give us this new perspective. God, we need help. And so we ask for your grace and your kindness, which, which you offer to us freely through Jesus Christ. So at great cost to him, it is graciously, freely offered to us. Father, for those who are struggling with sin, who are suffering this morning, would they find true refuge in faith and obedience to the God who sees, who cares, who knows them. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy on us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.